Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I didn't want to say this in front of Pastor Kendra, what with her about to give birth to her first child and all, but now that she's gone on family leave, I can tell it to you straight. Being a parent ain't easy. I know that's no big secret, but after three months of relative lockdown, I can say that this is a different animal. I read an article a couple of months ago, right after they shut down all of the schools, about all of the things that you ought to be doing with your kids at home in the midst of the pandemic. It's imperative that you maintain an orderly schedule and a daily routine, the author wrote. Young children should spend three or four hours a day doing something educational, maybe flashcards or reading exercises. Screen time, likewise, ought to be limited to a couple of hours of wholesome educational content. Healthy meals should be prepared at regular intervals, three square a day, and make sure that the kids get plenty of outdoor exercise and time to play. If you're a working parent right now, the author wrote, trying to do it from home, it's also important to create space for your own productivity. Put on some upbeat music, maybe light a candle and close the door. Don't worry too much about the kids, they're likewise engaged in productive activities working on the projects or the chores that you've already assigned them. By the time you've clocked out for the day, you can all enjoy a nice supper together, maybe watch a movie or play a board game, and by then the kids will be ready for bed at a perfectly reasonable hour. Now, this is all good counsel, very sound advice, and of course it's also completely unrealistic for most of us. Even as I write these words, on a battered laptop, one of my boys is charging around the room in his underpants, wielding an open umbrella, shouting about how strong he is and how he is going to defeat me in a battle to the death. My older son is staring at me with unblinking eyes, waiting for me to put his bagel bites in the microwave. And not to be outdone or ignored, there is also a dog who is literally chewing on my leg. The comments section of that article was a portrait of indignation from worn-out, exhausted parents who seemed to resent the almost Rockwellian tone of the piece, feeling judged for failing to live up to the author's utopian vision of parenthood in lockdown. Do you actually have any kids? One weary father inquired of the woman who wrote the article. I have 25 years of experience as an elementary education teacher, she replied. But after being pressed further, she was forced to admit that she did not have any children of her own, at which point the entire audience of commenters seemed to throw up their hands with an air of mutual frustration. On this Father's Day, I have to confess that after nine years of being a dad, I still have no idea what I'm doing. I've read the articles about parenting and some of the books, and none of them seem to offer consistent or realistic advice. I'm still struggling to find the rhythm, the plot, the trick to getting it right. 
I still get overwhelmed by the chaos that I can't seem to wrangle into much semblance of order, physically embodied in the growing piles of clothes and discarded toys that pile up along the walls, driven there like mounds of snow at the edge of a parking lot, the kind that towers above you as if threatening an avalanche. My own father was a fan of science fiction, and he introduced me to some of the greats of the genre, like Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick. In 1968, Dick published a short novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's a pretty dystopian work about a detective who hunts down rogue androids, saving his pay so that he can buy an artificial animal. All of the real ones died out in a nuclear war. And owning a high-quality facsimile affords one a certain degree of social status. It is, at its heart, a story about empathy. The titular electric sheep serve as a kind of conduit, something to care for and love, like a pet or even a child. You see, in this dreary world, people have grown numb, unable to feel much of anything beyond a generalized anxiety. An artificial goat or a sheep gives people something to love, something to feel. The author does a tremendous amount of world building in this short novel, envisioning a post-apocalyptic San Francisco that's surrounded by endless miles of radioactive junkyards, fallout, swirling around a city that is relatively untouched, as if in the eye of a storm. But it's also a world that is slowly sinking into entropy and a state of total collapse that is symbolized by growing piles of garbage all around the city that threaten to spill into its streets. In the book, Philip K. Dick coins a new term, a concept that he calls kipple. Kipple is useless objects, he writes, like junk mail or match folders after you use the last match or gum wrappers, or yesterday's newspaper. When nobody's around, kipple reproduces itself. For instance, if you go to bed leaving any kipple around your apartment, when you wake up the next morning, there's twice as much of it. It always gets more and more. That's the first law of kipple, one character explains to an android in one of the suburban tenements that's filled with trash. Kipple drives out non-kipple. It's like Gresham's law about bad money. We can't win. Why not, the android asks. No one can win against Kipple, he replies, except temporarily and maybe in one spot. Like, in my apartment, I've created a stasis between the pressure of Kipple and non-Kipple for the time being. But eventually, I'll die or go away, and then the Kipple will again take over. It's a universal principle operating throughout the whole universe, the entire universe is moving towards a final state of total, absolute kippalization. Whenever I read this, I'm reminded, of course, of the debris piled up along the walls of my son's bedroom, driven there to make a path, some kind of egress, a stasis between the pressure of kipple and non-kipple for the time being. But I'm also reminded of the world that we live in, 
where it feels like bad news keeps on piling up along the periphery of our consciousness, always threatening to topple over and crush us beneath its terrible weight. Whether we consciously realize it or not, the events of the past three months have taken a toll on our collective psyche. I don't need to repeat the litany of woes. You all know what's going on in the world. And on top of the problems themselves, there's a great deal of confusion and uncertainty about the state of things and what's true or not true or who to believe. And it all lends itself to a kind of generalized anxiety that you can't seem to shake, a sense of fear and unease that breathes down one's neck like an invisible ghost. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You're doing just fine, having a pretty good week, and all of a sudden, it's there. This dreadful feeling that something is very wrong, because it is. We can try to ignore it, but the proverbial kipple is still there. The prophet Jeremiah knew what it felt like to live in troubled times. He foresaw the impending Babylonian invasion, but everyone thought he was crazy and a real Debbie Downer to boot. In the text immediately preceding this one, Jeremiah is locked up in the stocks by an authority of the Jerusalem temple for preaching the stuff that no one wants to hear. And in this text, we get a glimpse into Jeremiah's inner world. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He doesn't want to be a prophet. He doesn't want to talk about violence and destruction all the time. He doesn't want to immerse himself in it, doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. But that's his job. That's his calling, to speak the truth, and he can't remain silent. If I say I will not mention God or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. And I cannot. Now I have to admit that as a preacher in 2020, I feel some of the same stress. I don't want to keep talking about violence and destruction or deadly viruses and their grim death tolls or the racism that infects the very DNA of our country or other woes that pile up like old newspapers along the edge of our consciousness. Most days, I don't really want to say anything at all. I don't want to cross any lines or say something I shouldn't or get myself tossed into the proverbial stocks. The poet T.S. Eliot illustrates this feeling perfectly. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. I am afraid. I'm afraid to read the news, I'm afraid of what tomorrow might bring. I am afraid to even speak because, to be honest, 
Sometimes I just don't know what to say. But I am not as afraid as the people who actually have to live with the violence and destruction that I only get up here and talk about. If someone has to die alone in a COVID ward or at the hands of police brutality, I ought to at least be able to summon the courage to talk about it. I came across something recently that convicted me from the writer Kitty Hannah Eden. Where are the words restoring dignity to all, she wonders. Write them. Revel in discomfort, wallow in curiosity, and write them. If you don't, you might wonder what might have happened if you had. It is a prophet's job and a preacher's job to speak the truth and tell it like it is, knowing that when we speak for God, something always gets lost in translation. But it falls to all of us, to me and to you, to act on God's word. You see, the world will always have its kibble, its woes that threaten to overwhelm us. And in that sense, at least, these days aren't so strange. We live in the eye of a storm, always, with troubles spiraling around us like thick, dark clouds. It's a preacher's job to name that tension, but it's our job to live in it, to hold the line against entropy and evil, and to prevent a final state of total, absolute kibbalization. To quote one last poet, William Blake, Oh, for a voice like thunder and a tongue to drown the throat of war. When the senses are shaken and the soul is driven to madness, who can stand? When the souls of the oppressed fight in the troubled air that rages, who can stand? When sin claps his broad wings over the battle and sails rejoicing in the flood of death, when souls are torn to everlasting fire, and fiends of hell rejoice upon the slain, who can stand? It is our job, friends, to stand, to hold the line for those who cannot, to create a space between the pressure of kibble and non-kibble, a place in the eye of the storm where we can all survive. As I lay in bed at night with my youngest son, his toys and his clothes and the dozens of costumes that he changes into every day are pressed up against the wall of his room, driven there to create a little space. They loom over us in the darkness just beyond the soft glow of the nightlight, lurking in the shadows. But here, in the sanctuary of his bed, they cannot touch us. Here we are curled up in one another, safe for a little while, in a loving embrace. For tonight, it's enough. And tomorrow, we'll work on cleaning up the mess. Maybe it's true that no one can win against Kipple, not completely. But we can, and we must, keep fighting. Amen.